Section 9 of the Afghan Wars, 1939-42 and 1978-80, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Renee, April 23, 2020. The Afghan Wars, 1839-42 and 1878-80, Part 2 by Archibald Forbes. Chapter 8. My Wand and the Great March. When in the early spring of 1880, Sir Donald Stewart quitted Kandabar with the Bengal Division of his force. He left there with the Bombay Division, to the command of which General Primrose ascended, General Freyhir assuming charge of the communications. The province during the early summer was fairly quiet, but it was known that Abu Khan was making hostile preparations at Herat, although the reports as to his intentions and movements were long uncertain and conflicting. Sheer Ali Khan, who had been governor of Kandabar during Stuart's residence there, had been nominated hereditary ruler of the province with the title of Wali, when it de determined to separate Kandabar from northeastern Afghanistan. On June 21st of the Wali, who had some days earlier crossed the Helmand and occupied Grish with his troops, reported that Aob was actually on the march toward the Kandir frontier and asked for the support of a British brigade to enable him to cope with the hostile advance. There was reason to believe that the Wali's troops were disaffected and that he was in no condition to meet Aob's army with any likelihood of success. After Stuart's departure, the strength of the British forces at the Kandahar was dangerously low, only 4,700 of all ranks but it was important to thwart Aob's offensive movement, and a brigade consisting of a troop of horse artillery, six companies of the 66th, two Bombay native infantry regiments, and 500 native troopers, in all about 2,300 strong, under the command of Brigadier General Burroughs, reaching the left bank of the Helmand on July 11th. On the 13th of the Wally's infantry, 2,000 strong, mutinied and mass, and marched away up the right bank of the river, taking with them a battery of smooth-bore guns, a present to Shir Ali Khan from the British government. His cavalry did not behave quite so badly, but not into great detail. His army no longer existed, and Burroughs' brigade was the only force in the field to resist the advance of Ayob Khan, whose regular troops were reported to number 4,000 cavalry and from 4,000 to 5,000 infantry, exclusive of the 2,000 deserters from Wally, with 30 guns and an irregular force of uncertain strength. Burroughs promptly recaptured from the Wally's infantry the battery they were carrying off and punished them severely. The mutineers had removed or destroyed the supplies which the Wally had accumulated for the source of the brigade, and General Burroughs therefore could no longer remain in the vicinity of Grish. The Helmand, owing to the dry season, was passable everywhere, so that nothing was to be gained by watching the fords. It was determined to fall back to the Kush-ik-Nakad, a point distant 30 miles from Gersh and 45 from Kandabar, where several roads from the Helmand converged and where supplies were plentiful. At and near Kush-ik-Nakad, the brigade remained from the 16th until the morning of the 27th July. While waiting and watching their dispatch from Army Headquarters at Sibla, it was communicated to General Burroughs from Kandahar. 
authorizing him to attack Aob if he thought himself strong enough to beat him, and informing him that it considered of the greatest political importance that the force from Herat should be dispersed and prevented from moving on towards Gunsi. Spies brought in news that Aob had reached Gurs, and was distributing his force along the right bank between the place and Hybrad. Cavalry patrols failed to find the enemy until the 21st, when a detachment was encountered in the village of Sangbar, on the northern road, about halfway between Helmand and Kisil-Nakat. Next day, that village was found more strongly occupied, and on the 23rd, a residence in force came upon a body of Aob's horsemen in the plain below the Gamano Hills, about midway between Sangbar and Maiwand. These discoveries were tolerably clear indications of Aob's intention to turn Barrow's position by moving along the northern road to Maiwand, and thence pressing on through the Maiwand Pass, until at Singri Aob's army should have interposed itself between the bridge and Candlebalar. There was certainly nothing impossible in such an endeavor, since Maiwand is neither Kandahar than is Kusnikahad. Why, in the face of the information at its disposal, and the precautions enjoined on him to hinder Aob from slipping by him toward Gunzi through Maywand and up the Karakarax Valley, General Burroughs should have remained so long at kush Nakad is not intelligible. He was stirred at length on the afternoon of the 26th by his army, his, his reported intention being to push through on the Maywand Pass and reach the Urgalab Valley in rear of the British Brigade. Later in the day, Colonel St. John, the political officer, reported to General Burroughs the intelligence which had reached through him the whole of Aob's army was at Singbur, but credence was not given to that information. The somewhat tardy resolution was taken to march to Maywand on the morning of the 27th. There was the expectation that the brigade would arrive at the place before the enemy should have occupied it in force. At this point, made good there might be the opportunity to drive out Germano, the body of Yokob's cavalry, reported in possession there. There was a further reason why Maiwan would be promptly occupied. The brigade had been obtaining its supplies from that village, and there was still a quality of grain in its vicinity to lose, which would be unfortunate. The brigade, now 2,600 strong, struck camp on the morning of the 27th. The march to Maiwan was 12 miles long, and an earlier start than 6.30 would be, have been judicious. The soldiers marched fast, but halts from time to time were necessary to allow the baggage to come up. The hostile state of the country did not admit of anything being left behind, and the column was numbered by a great quantity of stores and baggage. At Karazaza, eight miles from Kroshnikahad, and four miles southwest of Maiwand, information was brought in that the whole of Yakob's army was close by on the left front of the brigade and marching toward Maywand. The spies had previously moved themselves to untrustworthy that small heed was taken of the report, but a little later a cavalry renaissance found large bodies of cavalry moving in the direction indicated and inclining away toward Gamano as the brigade arrived. A thick haze made it impossible to discern what if force, if any, was being covered by the cavalry. About 10 a.m., the advance guard occupied the village of Mundabond, and three miles southwest of Maywand. West of Mundabond, close to the village, was a broad and a deep ravine running north and south.
Beyond this ravine was a wide expanse of level and partially cultivated grain across Maywand, across which, almost entirely concealed by the haze, Ayub's army was marching eastward toward Mayande village, which concerns the western entrance to the pass of the same name. If General Burrow's eye could have penetrated that haze, probably he would have considered it prudent to take up a defensive position, for which Mundabad presented many advantages. But he was firm in his conviction that the enemy's guns were not up, notwithstanding the reports of spies to the contrary. He believed that a favorable opportunity presented itself for taking the initiative, and he resolved to attack with all possible speed. Lieutenant McLean of the Horse Artillery, a gallant young officer who was soon to meet a melancholy fate, precipitated events in a somewhat reckless fashion. With the two guns he commanded he crossed the ravine, galloped toward the plain, and opened fire on a body of Afghan cavalry which had just come within view. General Netfall, commanding the cavalry and horse artillery, failing to recall McLean, set forward in support of him the four remaining guns of the battery. Those approached to within 800 yards of the two advanced pieces, and McLean was directed to fall back upon the battery pending the arrival of the brigade, which General Burroughs was now sending forward. It crossed a ravine near Mundabad, advanced on the plain with a mile in a northwesterly direction, and then formed up. There were several changes in the dispositions. When the engagement became warm, about noon, the formation was as follows. The 66th foot was on the right, its right flank thrown back to check an attempt made it to turn by a rush of Gazis springing out of the ravine in the British front. On the left of the 66 were four companies of Jacob's Rifles, 30th Native Infantry, and a company of sappers. The center was occupied by the horse artillery and smooth-bore guns, of which latter, however, two had been moved to the right flank. On the left of the guns were its grenadiers, somewhat refused, and on the left extreme, two companies of Jacob's Rifles. The cavalry was in the rear, engaged in efforts to prevent the Afghans from taking the British infantry in reverse. The position was radically faulty, and indeed invited disaster. Both flanks were en lair, in face, of an enemy of greatly superior strength, almost from the first every rifle in the fighting line, and the sole reserve consisted of the two cavalry regiments. The baggage had followed the brigade across the ravine and was halted about 1,000 yards in rear of the right, inadequately guarded by cavalry detachments. For half an hour, no reply was made to the British shell fire, and an offensive movement at this time might have resulted in success. But presently, battery after battery was brought into action by the Afghans, until half an hour after noon, the fire of 30 guns were concentrated on the brigade. Under cover of this artillery fire, the disease from the ravine charged forward to within 500 yards of the 66, but the rifle fire of the British regiment drove them back to the F with heavy loss, and they recoiled as far as the ravine, whence they maintained a desultory fire. The enemy's artillery fire was well sustained and effective. The infantry found some protection from it in lying down, but the artillery and cavalry remained exposed and su suffered severely. An artillery duel was maintained for two hours, greatly to the disadvantage of the brigade, which had but 12 guns in action against 30 well-served Afghan pieces. The prostate infantry had escaped serious punishment, but by 2 p.m. the cavalry had lost 14% of the men on the front line and 149 horses.
the Afghan horsemen had turned both flanks and the brigade was all but surrounded while a separate attack was being made on the baggage. Heat and one of water were telling heavily on Sepoys, who were further demoralized by the Afghan artillery fire. A little later, the smooth bore of guns had to be withdrawn for want of ammunition. This was the signal for a general advance of the Afghans. Their guns were pushed forward with great boldness. Their cavalry streamed round in the British left. In the right rear were masses of mounted and dismounted irregulars who had seized the villages on the British line of retreat. Swarms of Aguzis soon showed themselves threatening the center and left. Those in front of the 66 were still held in check by the steady volumes fired by that regiment. At sight of the Gazis, the cowed by the heavy, heavy artillery fire and the loss of their officers, the two companies of Jacob's rifles on the left suddenly fell into confusion and broke into the ranks of the grenaders. That regiment had behaved well, but it caught the infection of demoralism. The whole left collapsed, and the sepoys in utter panic, surrounded by and intermingled with the Gazis, rolled in a great wave upon the right. The artillerymen and sappers made a gallant stand fighting the Gazis hand-in-hand with handspikes and rammers, while the guns poured canister after canister into the enemy's hands. Slade reluctantly limbered up and took his four guns out by the action. McLean remained in action until the Gazis were at the muzzles of his two guns, which fell into the enemy's hands. The torrent of mingled sepoys and Gazis broke in about the 66 and overwhelmed that regiment. The slaughter of the sepoys was appalling. So utterly cowed were they that they scarcely attempted to defend themselves, they, and allowed themselves without resistance to be dragged out of the ranks and killed. A cavalry charge was ordered in the direction of the captured guns, but it failed when the troops retired in disorder. The infantry, assailed by hordes of fierce and triumphant disease, staggered away to the right, and the 66 alone maintaining any show of formation until the ravine was closed when the broken remnants of the Sepoy regiments took to flight toward the east and the general efforts to rally them were wholly unavailing. The 66th, with some of the sappers and grenadiers, made a gallant stand round its colors in an enclosure near the village of Kig. There, Colonel Gabrath and several of his officers were killed, and his little body of brave men, being outflanked, continued its retreat, making stand after stand until most were slain. The Afghans pursued for about four miles, but were checked by a detachment of rallied cavalry and assisted. The fugitives, formed with wounded and baggage and a straggling column upwards of six miles long, crossed a waterless desert sixteen miles wide to Hanzai Midat, which had reached around midnight and where water was found. From Azukan, where cultivation began, to Kokoran near Kandahar, the retreat was harassed by armed villagers, and the troops had to fight more or less all of the way. Officers and men were killed, Lieutenant McLean was taken prisoner, and five of the smooth bore guns had to be abandoned because of the exhaustion of the teams. About midday of the 28th, the broken remnants of the brigade reached Kandahar. When the casualties were ascertained, it became evident how disastrous the British arms had been to the Comet of Maiwand. Out of a total of 2,476 engaged, no fewer than 964 were killed. The wounded number 167, 331 followers and 201 horses were killed, and 7 followers and 68 horses wounded. Since Chile and Walla, the British armed in Asia had not suffered loss so severe.
The spirit of the Kandahar forest suffered martially from the Maiwan disaster, and it was held that there was no alternative but to accept the humiliation of a sage within the fortified city. The cantonments were abandoned, the whole force was withdrawn into Kandahar, and was detailed for duty on the city walls. The effective garrison on the night of the 28th numbered 4,360, including the survivors of the Maiwan Brigade. So alert were the Afghans that a cavalry resonance made on the morning of the 29th found the cantonments plundered and partially burned in the vicinity of Kandahar swarming with armed men. The whole Afghan population, amounting to about 12,000 persons, were compelled to leave the city, and then the work of placing it in a state of defense was energetically undertaken. Buildings and enclosures affording cover too close to the site were raised, communication along the walls was opened up, and gun platforms were constructed in the more commanding positions. The walls were both high and thick, but they were considerably dilapidated, and there were gaps and breaks in the busted tones on the parapet. The weak places as well as the gates were fronted with abatis. The defects were made good with sandbags, and wire entanglements and other obstructions were laid down outside the walls. While the work was in progress, the covering parties were in daily collision with the enemy, and occasional sharp skirmishes occurred. On the 8th August, Aob opened fire on the Kedatel from Pickett Hill, an elevation northwestward of the city, and a few days later he brought guns into villages from the villages of Dakoja and Dakati on the east and south. This fire, steadily maintained, though it was day after day, had little effect, and the return fire gave good results. It was not easy to invest a city since on the west and north there was no cover for the besiegers, but in Dakoja on the east there was ample protection from batteries, and on the ground on the southwest was very favorable. Its advantages were improved so skillfully that it was at one time believed that there was a European engineer in Aob's camp. Dakoja was inconveniently near the full gate, and was always full of men. So menacing was the attitude of the Afghans that a sortie was resolved on against the village, which had conducted with resolution but resulted in utter failure. The attempt was made on the morning of the 16th. The cavalry went out on hinder reinforcements from entering the village from the eastward. An infantry force 800 strong, commanded by Brigadier General Brooke and divided into three parties, moved out later, covered by a heavy artillery fire from the city walls. The village was reached, but so full of enemies and occupation of the fortress-like houses that it was almost untenable, and the three detachments extricated themselves separately. In the course of the retirement, General Brooke and Captain Krusadak were killed. The casualties were very heavy. 106 were killed, and 117 were wounded. The tidings of the Maywan disaster reached Kabul on the 29th July by telegram from Simla. The intention of the military authorities had already been intimidated that the Kabul force should evacuate Afghanistan in two separate bodies and by two distinct routes. Sir Donald Stewart was to march one position by the cyber route. The other, under Sir Frederick Roberts, was to retire by the Karam Valley, which Watson's division had been garrisoning since Roberts had crossed the Sertagon in September 1879. But the Maiwan news interfered with those arrangements. Stewart and Roberts occurred to the necessity of retrieving to the Maiwan disaster by the dispatch of a division from Kabul. 
Roberts promptly offered to lead that division, and as promptly the offer was accepted by Stewart. By arrangement with the latter, Roberts telegraphed to Simla urging that a force should be dispatched from Kabul without delay, and recognizing that the authorities might hesitate to send on this errand troops already under orders to return to India, he took it on himself to guarantee that none of the soldiers would demur, providing he was authorized to give the assurance that after the work in the field was over, they would not be detained in garrison at Kandalahar. A Vicaroy state sanction came on the 3rd August. The constitution and equipment of the force were entrusted to the two generals, and in reply to questions, His Excellency was informed that Roberts would march on the 8th and expected to reach Kandahar on 2nd September. Sir Donald Stewart gave his junior full freedom to select his troops to accompany him, and place at his disposal the entire resources of the army and transport and equipment. It cannot truly be said that it was the elite of the Kabul field force which constituted the column led by Roberts in his famous march to Kandahar. Of the native infantry regiments of his own original force, which he had mustered eleven months previously in the Karam, only two followed him to Kandahar, the 5th Garakas and 23rd Pioneers, and the 2nd Mountain Battery adhered to him staunchly. Of his original wide troops, the 9th Lancers, as ever, were ready for his march. His senior infantry regiment, the 67th, would fain have gone, but the good old corps was weak from casualties and sickness and the gallant Nolis denied himself in the interests of his men. The two Highland regiments, the 72nd and 92nd, had done an infinity of fighting and marching, but both had received strong drafts, were in fine condition, and not and hindered from following the chief whom, though not their northern blood, the stalwart sons of the mist swore by as one man. Sir Frederick Roberts had already represented that it would be impolitic to require the native regiments to remain absent from India and their homes for a longer period than two years. In the case of many of the regiments, that term was closely approached, and the men, after prolonged absence and arduous toil, needed rest and were longing to rejoin their families. It was not, in the words of General Chapman, the eager desire that the honor of marching to Kandahar was sought for, and some commanding officers of experience judged rightly the tempers of their men when they represented for the general's consideration the claims of the regiments they commanded to be relieved as soon as possible from field service. The enthusiasm which carried Sir Frederick Roberts forced with exceptional rapidity to Kinalahar was an aftergrowth evolved by the enterprise itself, and came as a response to the unfailing spirit which animated the leader himself. The constitution of the force was made known by the general orders published on 3rd August. It consisted of three batteries of artillery commanded by Colonel Allure Johnson, of a cavalry brigade, of four regiments commanded by Brigadier General Hugh Gow, and of an infantry division of three brigades commanded by Major General John Ross. The first brigade was commanded by Brigadier General Herbert MacPherson, the second of Brigadier General T.D. Baker, and the third by Brigadier General Charles McGregor. Colonel Chapman, R.A., who had served in the same capacity with Sir Donald Stewart, was now Robert's chief of staff. The marching out strength of the column was about 10,000 men, of whom 2,835 were Europeans. Speed being an object, and since the column might have been on the traverse rough ground, no wheeled artillery or transport accompanied it. The guns were carried on mules, the baggage were severely cut down, the supplies carried were reduced to a minimum, and the transport animals, numbering 
8,590 consisted of mules, ponies, and donkeys. It was known that the country could supply flour, sheep, and forage. The time specified for the departure of the force from Shapur was kept to the day. On the 8th, the brigades moved on a short distance from the camp. And on the following morning, the march began in earnest. The distance from Kabul to Kedahar is about 320 miles, and the march naturally divides itself into three parts, from Kabul to Gunzi, 98 miles, from Gunzi to Kali i Ghazale, 134 miles, and from Khalid i Ghazale to Kandalar, 88 miles. Gunzi was reached on the seventh day, the daily average being 14 miles. Excellent work for troops unseasoned to long continuous travel, tramping steadily in a temperature of from 84 degrees to 92 degrees in the shade. When possible, the force moved on a broad front, the brigades and regiments leading by rotation, and halts were made at specified intervals. The rouse sounded at 2.45 a.m., and the march began at 4. The troops were generally in camp by 2 p.m., and the baggage was usually reported all in by 5, and the rear guard had both hard work and long hours. There was no sign of opposition anywhere. Not a single load of baggage was left behind. Comparatively, few men fell out of foot sore, and the troops were steadily increasing in endurance and capacity of rapid and continuous marching. As Gunzi, there was no rest by the day, and the steadfast dogged march was resuming on the morning of the 16th. The strain of this day's long tramp of 20 miles to Yurgadi was severe, but the men rallied gamely, and the general, by dint of care and expedient, was able to keep up the high pressure. The method, writes General Chapman, of such marching as was now put in practice is not easy to describe. It combined the extreme of freedom and movement with carefully regulated halts and the closest control on every portion of the column. It employed the individual intelligence of each man composing the matches in its motion, and called on all for exertion in overcoming the difficulties of the march, in bearing its extraordinary toil, and in aiding in the accomplishment of the object in view. On the 20th, a distance of 21 miles was covered, the longest day's march made. The effort was distressing owing to the heat and to the lack of the shade, but it was enforced by the absence of water. There was no relaxation in the rate of marching, and Colette I. Galazi was reached on the eighth day from Gunzi, showing a daily average of nearly 17 miles. The 24th was a halt day at Colette I. Gilzai, where Sir Frederick Roberts received a letter from General Primrose in Kandahar, describing the sortie made on the village of De Koja and giving details of the situation. It was resolved to evacuate Kela I Gilzai and take on its garrison within the column, which on the 25th resumed its march to Kandahar. On his arrival at Tiz Andes at the following day, the general found a letter from Kandahar informing him that the news of his approach of the Kabul force Ayob Khan had withdrawn from his investment of cavalry regiments. Kandahar then shifted his camp to the village of Mesra in the Urganda Valley, nearly due north of Kandahar. On the morning of the 27th, General Hugh Gao was sent forward with two cavalry regiments a distance of 34 miles to Robat, the main column moving on to Kalakund, halfway to its former place. Gao was accompanied by Captain Straton, 
the principal signaling officer of the force, who was successful in communicating with Kandahar. In the afternoon, Colonel St. John, Major Leach, and Major Adam rode out into Robat, bringing information that Ayo Khan was engaged in strengthening his position in the Urgunda Valley and apparently had the intention to risk the issue of a battle. On the 28th, the whole force was concentrated at Robat and it, as it was desirable that the troops would reach Kandahar fresh and ready for prompt action, the general decided to make the 20th a rest day and divide the 19 miles from Robat to Kandahar in two short marches. The long forced march from Kabul may be regarded as having ended at Robat. The distance between those two places, 303 miles, had been covered in 20 days. It is customary in a long march to allow two rest days in each week, but Roberts had granted his force but a single rest day in the twenty days of its strenuous march. Including this rest day, the average daily march was a fraction over fifteen miles. As the feat of marching by a regular force of ten thousand men, encumbered with baggage and followers, this achievement is unique, and it could have been accomplished only by thorough organization and steady vigorous energy. Sir Frederick Roberts was so fortunate as to encounter no opposition. For this immunity, he was indebted mainly to the stern lessons given to him by the tribesmen by Sir Donald Stewart at Ahmed Kellan Urzu, while that resolute soldier was marching from Kandahar to Kabul, and in a measure also to the good officers of the new emir. But it must be remembered that Roberts had no assurance of exemption from hostile efforts to block his path and that he marched ever ready to fight. It will long be remembered how when Roberts had started on the long swift march, the suspense as to its issue grew and swelled until the strain became intense. The safety of the garrison of Kandahar was in grave hazard. The British prestige, impaired by the disaster of Maiwand, was trembling in the balance. The days passed, and there was no news of Roberts and the 10,000 men with whom the wise, daring little chief had cut loose from any base and struck for his goal through a region of ill repute for fanaticism and bitter hostility. The pessimists among us held him to be rushing on his ruin. But Roberts marched light. He lived on what the country supplied. He gave the tribesmen no time to concentrate against him, and in two days, in advance of the time he had set himself, he reached Kandahar at the head of a force in full freshness of vigor and burning with zeal for immediate battle. While halted at Rabat on the 29th, Sir Frederick heard from General Fair that his division had been retarded in its march by lack of transport, but that he hoped to have it assembled at Killa Abula on the 28th and would be able to move toward Kandahar on the 30th. But as Killa Abdullah is distant some eight marches from Kandahar, it was obvious that General Fair could not arrive in time to share in the impending battle. On the morning of the 31st, the Kabul force reached Kandahar. Sir Frederick Roberts, who had been suffering from fever for some days, was able to leave his dually and mount his horse in time to meet General Primrose and his officers in the east of Dalkoja. The troops halted and breakfasted outside the Shikapur Gate, while General Roberts entered the city and paid a visit to the Wali Shir Ali Khan. On his arrival, he assumed command of the troops in southern Afghanistan, and he remained resting in the city while the Kabul force marched its selected camping ground near the destroying cantonments on the northwest of Kandahar. A few shots were fired, but the ground was occupied within the opposition. Baker's brigade was on the right, camped in rear of Pickett Hill. In the center was Macpherson's brigade, 
sheltered in its front by Carez Hill, and on its left among orchards and enclosures with McGregor's brigade, in rear of which was the cavalry. End of section 9. Recording by Elizabeth Renee, April 27, 2020.